Few inventions can truly be attributed to one person. We say Edison made the light bulb, and we say Bell made the telephone, but in reality, both of them were just at the end of a long line of innovation. Michel de Montaigne, the Renaissance French writer, is one of the only few true innovators in human history. Before Montaigne published his essays in 1580, the personal essay did not exist. After Montaigne, it was one of the most popular art forms in Europe. Montaigne was to literature what Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, and Grandmaster Flash were to popular music combined. Innumerable writers since the 1580s have been influenced by Montaigne and saw themselves in his essays, as Sarah Bakewell writes in her biography of him, How to Live. Ever since the book came out, Montaigne has been an extremely relatable figure in contemporary society. After having read Montaigne, Stephen Zweig said, Here is a you in which my eye is reflected. Here is where all distance is abolished. More simply, Bernard Levin said, How did he know all that about me? In the next 20 minutes, I'll tell you how. Stoney and I'm Gabe Robert. You're listening to Bookish, a prospect podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about How to Live by Sarah Bakewell. Sarah Bakewell's award-winning biography of Montaigne, with the full, rather long title of How to Live or A Life of Montaigne in One Question and Twenty Attempts at an Answer, is more than just the story of Montaigne's life. It's the story of a writer, his writing and philosophy, and a series of essays on how to live, as the title says. But, being principally a biography, the book spends most of its time telling the history of Montaigne's life and of the essays, his magnum opus. So I'll begin with some context on the man and his work. Michel de Montaigne was born on February 23, 1533, just outside of Bordeaux. His parents called him Michaud. He only published work in French, but Latin was always his native language. Bakewell notes that as an adult, when his father fainted from a kidney stone attack, Montaigne exclaimed in Latin as he caught him in his arms. Montaigne was educated by a German tutor who spoke only Latin to him, and as such, he spoke Latin and French with a slight German accent. He went to boarding school in Bordeaux and then studied law. It's unclear exactly where and when he went to university. After he left, he served in the Bordeaux Parliament, where he met a great friend, Etienne de Boati. Montaigne's writing was influenced by Le Boati even after he died in 1563, a tragedy that deeply affected Montaigne. He married Francois de la Cassagne in 1565. It was a loveless, arranged marriage. Montaigne would eventually have six daughters with her. Only Leonor II survived past infancy. A few years later, in 1568, he was commissioned to translate an old scientific text and, after his father died, eventually took on the role of the head of house at the Chateau de Montaigne. Then, in 1571, he made a decision that would, in the end, lodge him in the literary canon forever. Montaigne decided that he'd had enough of public life. He retreated to his tower, 
a cozy sanctuary decorated with frescoes and stocked with his writing desk, a library with some 1,500 books, and his cat. On the wall in Latin, he painted a declaration of his retirement. It read, In the year of Christ, 1571, at the age of 38, on the last day of January, anniversary of his birth, Michel de Montaigne, long weary of the servitude of the court and of public employments, while still entire, retired to the bosom of the learned virgins, where in calm and freedom from all cares, he will spread what little remains of his life now more than half run out. If the fates permit, he will complete this abode, this sweet ancestral retreat, and he has consecrated it to his freedom, tranquility, and leisure. In other words, Montaigne closed himself up in his tower so he could write in peace. He would begin writing his essays, his greatest work. The book is, of course, a collection of essays, long, rambling trains of thought on whatever topic interested Montaigne on any given day. There are profound essays and simple essays, essays on his family, friends, and animals, and all variety of concepts and ideas and things. Titles range from On Idleness to On Smells to On Cannibals. The French verb essayer means to try. The essays aren't contrived, organized diatribes like the ones you write in school. Montaigne tries an idea, writing what he thinks and following his thoughts to whatever conclusion they come to. Montaigne had only one hard rule in his life, one he learned from reading Ovid. Pursue pleasure. In his writing, he goes wherever feels right. The essays as a whole don't have any overarching message, really. To ask what Montaigne's philosophy is would be like asking what color the forest is, or asking what direction the water in the ocean is moving. There's no one message. In Bakewell's words, the essays rarely offer to explain or teach anything. Montaigne presents himself as someone who jotted down whatever is going through his head when he picked up his pen, capturing encounters and states of mind as they happened. Montaigne breaks off on unintelligible tangents, ending an essay nowhere close to where he began. Does this make the essays hard to follow? Sure, but Montaigne expects his readers to follow on their own. Quote, it is the inattentive reader who loses my subject, not I, said Montaigne. The essays leave us confused, and as Bakewell writes, in the end, the oddity of the human mind is the only thing we can be really sure of. constructed in 20 chapters, each one an essay about how to live. The chapter titles are all answers to that question in the title, answering it in 20 different ways. Some answers include how to live, read a lot and forget most of what you read and be slow-witted, or how to live, use little tricks, or how to live, be ordinary and imperfect. Sometimes this structure impedes Bakewell's writing. For instance, the third chapter is called How to Live, Be Born. This whole chapter is just biographical information about Montaigne's early life, and while it does move forward the story, 
Bakewell's narration lacks verve when allowed to drag on for 20 pages. This is one of the few missteps in the book. Almost everywhere else, and especially later in the book, historical context is woven smoothly into retelling of Montaigne's stories and Bakewell's own analysis. Bakewell tries to do so many things at once in this book, and her real skill as a writer is how she manages to make it all fit together. For example, at one point in the chapter titled How to Live, Pay Attention, she writes how Montaigne's loopy, rambling writing style is a product of his paying attention to everything in the world. This transitions directly and almost imperceptibly into comments on how to live. Quote, Montaigne was the first to write in such a way, but not the first to live with full attention to the present moment. This was another of the rules recommended by the classical philosophers. As Seneca put it, life does not pause to remind you that it's running out. The only one who can keep mindful of this is you. Beckwell moves cleanly from biography to analysis and back again. Throughout the book, Beckwell boils down Montaigne's points to answer the titular question, how to live. She never states advice explicitly, Beckwell is far above that as a writer. But when she writes that when Montaigne found his mind full of ideas, he decided to write them down, not directly to overcome them, but to inspect their strangeness at his leisure, Beckwell's advice is clear inspect the strangeness of our own ideas at our own leisure. Some of Bakewell's conclusions particularly stand out. One of my favorites is that happiness should come from within, rather from without. That way, your happiness is more sustainable and durable. As I said before, Montaigne retreated to his tower to work in peace in 1571. He referred to an area boutique, or a room behind the shop where he could both literally and metaphorically go to be alone. Bakewell quotes Montaigne, quote, We should have wife, children, goods, and above all, health, if we can, but we should not bind ourselves to them so strongly that all our happiness depends on them. We must reserve a back shop all our own. Here we must talk and laugh as if without wife, without children, without possessions, so that when the time comes to lose them, it will be nothing new to us to do without them. Bakewell puts it simply to us in the chapter title, How to Live, Keep a Private Room Behind the Shop. And so we can learn from Montaigne. Another one of Bakewell's preeminent conclusions takes place across the whole of the book. Over and over, it is clear that Montaigne believes that people are fallible, and that is okay. This first comes across through a biographical point from Bakewell. When Montaigne was in the Bordeaux Parliament, he couldn't stand the system of criminal law and was vocal in calling for legal reform. He hated it so much because the law ignored the fact that people are fallible, that criminals, as well as lawyers, judges, and lawmakers, are always fallible. We're wrong all the time, and Montaigne thinks that's a good thing. It's an opportunity for growth and observation and it's always advantageous to entertain competing ideas. For this, contemporary biographers accuse Montaigne of being a coward. He didn't have the courage to make authoritative conclusions. But if that is cowardice, Montaigne was happy to be a coward. He acknowledged that he didn't know everything. This was a philosophy he lifted from the ancient Greek Epicureans. He took one of their catchphrases, Epeko 
meaning I don't know or I hold back, and made it a centerpiece of his philosophy. Bakewell lays this out so we can learn from Montaigne. How to live, be wrong. Once again, while she never explicitly gives advice, Bakewell's intentions are clear. Listen to Montaigne. He will help you. Multiple times when reading How to Live, I dropped the book in shock at how relatable it felt. Bakewell once quoted Montaigne, When I dance, I dance. When I sleep, I sleep. When I walk alone in the beautiful orchard, if my thoughts have been dwelling on extraneous incidents for some part of the time, for some other part I bring them back to the walk, to the orchard, to the sweetness of the solitude, and to me. Next to this quote, in frenzied handwriting, I wrote, I love this. I adore this. I've been trying to cultivate this very feeling for years, and Montaigne put it into words more clearly and perfectly than I ever could. Later, Montaigne, via Bakewell, asks the reader to imagine that today is the last day of their life, to remind you that time is always passing, something else I've been thinking about recently. And again, near the end of the book, I was thrilled to find that my own attempts to work smarter and not harder had a predecessor in Montaigne's own writings. At many moments in the text, it felt like Montaigne knew me, or at least felt the same things that I felt. Bakewell tells me that I'm not alone in this feeling. Stefan Zwieg, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a biography of Montaigne and was astonished by the similarities between the old Frenchman's writing and his own experience as an Austrian living in the first half of the 20th century. Zwieg called Montaigne an indispensable helper, confidant, and friend. Alexander Pope, one of the greatest of the English poets, said of the essays, This is, in my opinion, the very best book for the information of manners that has been writ. This author says nothing but what everyone feels at the heart. Montaigne's form of the essays was repeated over and over again, becoming a popular form in Europe in the 17th century, though no one came close to rivaling Montaigne. And even Shakespeare was a big Montaigne fan. References to the essays are visible, if faintly, in Hamlet, and much more overtly in The Tempest. So why do we see ourselves so thoroughly in the essays? It's simple. Montaigne is the essays, and looking at Montaigne is like looking in a mirror. Let me explain. Montaigne worked on the essays from 1571 until he died in 1592. Over those two decades, he did his best to recreate himself on the page, to create a memoir of thought. He did indeed change over those 20 years, but kept writing anyway and didn't try to erase younger versions of himself in older essays. All these Montaigne's together create the man visible in the essays today. Composed in a piecemeal fashion like Frankenstein's monster, the essays are made of a jumble of ideas and conceptions that altogether resemble a man. The collection of Montaigne's thoughts ends up looking like him. Bakewell compares the book to a solar system and Montaigne is the book's massive gravitational core, 
even as it becomes ever more heavily laden with extra limbs, ornaments, baggage, and jumbled body parts. On a tour of Europe Montaigne took near the end of his life, he passed through Paris and met King Henry III. Montaigne presented the king with a copy of his essays, and the king told him he liked it. Montaigne replied, Sir, then your majesty must like me. The story may be apocryphal, but it gets the point across. Montaigne was the essayist. But that grammar isn't quite right. It's not exactly that Montaigne was the essayist, though that's certainly true. In a way, Montaigne still is the essayist. Each reading of the book creates a new essayist and creates a new Montaigne. Bakewell quotes William Hazlitt, an English literary critic, who said that a Montaigne essay, quote, plays the whole game of human life before us, and by making us enlightened spectators of its many colored scenes, enables us, if possible, to become tolerably reasonable agents in the one in which we have to perform a part. In other words, we have a role in reading the essays, injecting our own perspective and own thoughts into it. Beckwell brings another conclusion from this, quote, The essays can never truly be said to be finished. Montaigne the man may have hung up his boots and abandoned his quill, but so long as readers and editors disagree about the results, Montaigne the author has never quite put that final ink mark on the page. Why are the essays in particular so susceptible to analysis and thus never finished? Bagwell argues that this is precisely because of the point I made a moment ago, because Montaigne is the essays. She writes that the subject he teaches is simply himself, an ordinary example of a living being. Montaigne gives enough details for us to fill in all the gaps and create an idea of Montaigne that looks familiar to ourselves. In Bakewell's words, Montaigne saw himself as an ordinary man in every respect except for his unusual habit of writing things down. He bears the entire form of the human condition, as everyone does, and is therefore happy to cast himself as a mirror for others. That is the whole point of the essays. If no one could recognize themselves in him, why would anyone read him? You may see yourself in the essays, and you may see yourself in Montaigne, but Montaigne the man is dead. The Montaigne you see in the essays is you. podcast was written and recorded by me, Gabriel Bear, and was produced under the 145th Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian. It was edited by Cami Lee and produced by Franny Block, with production help from Isabel Rodriguez. Have a book you want us to review or want to talk about a previous episode? Send us an email at podcast at dailyprincetonian.com. For the Daily Princetonian, this has been Bookish. Have a great day, and keep reading.